Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra, your host. This is a podcast series amplifying raw human stories, tackling racism and inequalities in life and in work. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join me. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, we know that change is happening. So why not come along and be part of that change? Hi all, it's Sandra here. We are officially back. We went on a much-needed summer break. You'll notice we look a little different, but we are back with a bang. Welcome to our first guest for Season 3, Josh Rivers. Busy being Black is a fucking movement, right, Josh? I mean, I love that. I just love that. I saw that as a quote on your website. And I don't know if this is going to be the title of the show, but I just like it for now. And I think it's just such a great title. Busy being Black is just amazing. So, Josh Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We've been talking, haven't we? We've been doing some kind of work, a little bit of work together through my job and with Black Prides. We've got some exciting things on the kind of cards in the future, hopefully. But I think it'd be great if you could tell our listeners who you are. Who is Josh Rivers? Mm, I love these kind of like existential questions. I mean, on the surface, I'm a queer Black man. I'm a podcaster, communications professional, someone who cares deeply about the queer community. I am someone who's committed to creating change in the world, and I'm still finding new ways and exciting ways to figure out how best I can be part of that change. And I find this process really exciting. I'm really energized intellectually at the minute. I feel like I'm encountering people, ideas, theories that are really helping me make sense of the world. And I'm someone who's quite prone to nihilism. (laughs) Like I just think like nihilism is an appropriate response to the kind of onslaught of the world. And so I am often looking for things that give me a spark that make me feel alive, make me feel like I can create the kind of change that I want to see. And so I'm feeling really good at the moment. I'm feeling like Josh is leaning into himself more and more. So what's creating the spark for you at the moment? I think I'm responding really well to some of the more recent issues that have arisen in the community just over the past couple of weeks, even, right? The the babies, homophobic and HIV phobic comments, the kind of continued domination of white gays and lesbians in the LGBTQ narrative, the continued exclusion of black people and people of color from LGBTQ spaces you know, the disavowal of institutional racism in the Sewell report here in the UK, which just came out a couple months ago. And I feel like I'm responding to these moments with an anger that feels quite righteous, but that drives me to figure out, well, why does that happen, right? I think that understanding why things happen has been very important to me so that I can then metabolize that and give it back to people, right? So if you're also confused about what's happening right now, let me help I'm trying to figure out how to make it make sense for myself. Maybe this makes sense for you too. And I learned a few years ago that when I show people what I'm learning, right? When I'm saying, oh, I'm toying with this idea, or I thought about this, or I read this, go here, read this, listen to this, that people really respond. They're so grateful. They're like, ah, I've been trying to 
figure this out too. And, you know, I love Instagram because it gives me a platform to do that. And it gives people a platform to feedback. And so I just feel really that spark is coming from this kind of cyclical back and forth, as it were, right? That I'm trying to figure things out. People are feeding into that process. And I just feel like I'm learning. And it's just exciting. It's exciting to me. Sounds really exciting. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot going on as well, not just for you, Mm. but for so many, right? What we talked about the Super Report before, there are just lots of things happening and, you know, all the kind of issues with pride at the moment. It feels like it's a really busy place, doesn't it? Like it's just busy and loud. Does it feel really loud Mm. to you? Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about it as loud, but I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely a, a great way of saying it. There's kind of this afterlife, to quote Sadia Hartman, <laughs> but there's this kind of afterlife of the 2020 protests mm-hmm. that I think we're still kind of reckoning with as Black people and as queer Black people, that so much of the intention, you know, the orchestrated intention, I'll say, of quote-unquote allies has proven to be quite thin, Mm-hmm. And we're still trying to navigate the world as queer and black people who are trying to figure things out as we go. And so, yeah, the noise can sometimes be distracting. I find that my best response to that is to to make sense of the noise, is to try to figure out what's going on. Like, can I, I'm looking at my book now, Black Queer Studies, which came out in 2005. And it's kind of this endless resource of theory that like helps make sense of what's happening in the present moment. And so the only way through that loudness, for me at least, is to dive into a book or an essay or a documentary and think, okay, well, someone has some explanation for what's happening. How can I find it? It's really interesting, really interesting way of putting it. It'd be great if you could drop some of those gems that you're kind of reading with our listeners. Anything that stands out for you that you're reading at the moment or... Absolutely. I'd love to do that. So... The first is Black Queer Studies, which is available from Duke Press, one of my favorite publishing houses. It's incredible. And it was compiled by E. Patrick Johnson and Meiji Henderson. And Black Queer Studies is an important text on its own because it represents the kind of beginning or flourishing of Black queer studies distinct from queer studies in the academy. And I'm not an academic. You know, I I did one year of university and was like, I'm going to go live in the world. But I'm really drawn to academic texts because I think they're really challenging and I like the challenge. I have to really focus my mind. And so Black Queer Studies is like this amazing compendium of thought from queer Black people who are trying to rethink what it means to be queer in the world and what it means to be Black simultaneously. And so there's conversations about what it means to have a queer politics, what it means to live among homophobic families, what it means to challenge the narrative around the closet, right, and coming out. And it's just this amazing resource. And, you know, I woke up this morning and I was thinking about something I read yesterday by Sadia Hartman. And I was like, there's something about the closet that's really bothering me. Like, what can I read that's going to help me think through it? And I grabbed Black Queer Studies and I looked at the table of contents and I was like, oh, of course, that essay by Marlon B. Ross about the closet. (laughs) So I just find it so helpful. I'm also loving Kevin Kwashi's two books, I'm currently on his second one. His first one, I reference all the time on the show, The Sovereignty of Quiet. And he argues in The Sovereignty of Quiet that Blackness, as it's constructed, is always supposed to tell us something about democracy or racism or violence. And actually that what we lose in that construction of Blackness is what he calls the wild and voluptuous interior lives of Black people. That 
we have worlds within us that we're not allowed to encounter or explore or nurture because we're so busy fighting for our lives, right? And he says that part of what we're trying to do is to create that space for us to explore those interior lives, to figure out who we are beyond anti-Blackness, right? That part of securing a Black joy, it lives within us. So I think about and reference that a lot. And the third one I'll say is Towards Gay Communism by Mario Miele. And I think it's considered a seminal queer theory text. And it came out in 1978, trigger warning suicide. Miele died by suicide in 1982, I believe, if I remember correctly. So just before the onset of the AIDS epidemic. And he was an Italian theorist who really challenged prevailing notions of homosexuality at the time and about heterosexuality. So one of his most exciting um, ideas was that, you know, homosexuality um, has always been pathologized, right? People are always trying to figure out why people are homosexual instead of why people are heterosexual. (laughs) And he says that, you know, heterosexuality depends on a vilified, demonized, deviant homosexual, which he thinks calls into question heterosexuality's own pathology, right? He thinks that heterosexuality doesn't actually make sense, that heterosexuality is a distortion of our natural state, which is to be all-encompassing, all-loving. And so I find that a really invigorating text because I think that's what I wanted to hear when I was coming into myself. I wanted to hear someone say, no, heterosexuality is not normal. It was made normal. And so I think I recommend that to everyone I meet. <laughs> like you have to read Towards the Gay Communism. It's really exciting. We're definitely going to add that to the list because they all three sound like something you definitely have to have on your bookshelf and you definitely need to digest, I think. You mentioned The Closet, and I wasn't going to ask you this, but since you did mention that, do you remember when you came out? Is it fair to ask you about The Closet? Do people say that these days? Uh, That's interesting. I don't mind being asked about when I came out because coming out forms part of that public discourse around gayness. And so I don't have an issue with the question and I don't have an issue with people's curiosity. I think one thing to consider is that some people have really difficult coming out experiences, really traumatic coming out experiences. And so I think what we have to figure out both as LGBTQ people and those outside of who support us, is how do we approach that inquiry, right? How do we find out more about people without potentially triggering them? How do we create space for those people to tell us about themselves in that way? And I don't have an answer to that. I'm still trying to figure that out. But my coming out was, in retrospect, was really good. I came out to my mom first when I was 16, and I thought it was going to be a huge deal. And she said, I've known since you were four. My dad didn't really care. He was very non-responsive. And what he said in the moment was, well, I I can't do anything about it, so what do you want me to say? And what I find interesting about my coming out experience was that as I've gotten older, I realized that my response to my dad's, well, what do you want me to say? I can't do anything about it, was one of anger. I was very angry at his response. And looking back, I don't know why. It's a pretty great response, right? (laughs) An acknowledgement that he can't do anything about it. (laughs) I probably said that too. (laughs) It was a fantastic response. And I was so upset. And I don't know why. And 
<laughs> I think I wanted him to disown me. I think I wanted him to be mad. I think I wanted mm -hmm. him to give me a reaction. And mm -hmm. he didn't. He didn't have a problem with it. And in trying to make sense of my response recently, I've been like, you know what? I think what we learn as young queer people still is that whether or not our family tells us that we're supported, the world tells us via kind of like a systemic and perpetual homophobia that it's wrong to be gay. And we internalize that. And so what happens is that we sit on this, we sit on this narrative and it builds up within us and this kind of ball of angst grows and grows and grows. And then we come out finally, you know, we get the strength to come out and your family goes, meh. <laughs> I'm like, that's infuriating, right? <laughs> if it was always going to be okay, why have I been sitting on this like that? And it made me think mm -hmm. of how we don't look after people after they come out. We prioritize coming out as the apex of the experience. We think that when people come out that everything's fine. It's not. You've got people who have been sitting on feelings of inferiority, of shame. They've been thinking about you as their family members, as people who will not like them. Like That has a really powerful impact on one's emotions, mental health. And so when they come out and we say it's fine and we, we don't go skipping down the street, <laughs> like we have to then unpack and untangle a knot that has been growing inside of us. And that's for those of us who are accepted. What happens for those who are not? Mm. What are happened for those who still can't come out? So there's an aftercare, I think, that we as a society have to be better at doing and which we as an LGBTQ community attempt to do, you know, through mm. chosen family, through nurturing and healing spaces. But there has to be, I think, a more comprehensive approach to how we look after young people or anyone who's questioning mm. who they are in the world. It's our role as an ally as well. I think I mentioned this to you before, but most of my nieces and nephews have all come out to me. And <laughs> so I just feel really privileged to be able to be that person for them. And But I think it's also helped other members of my family understand what an ally looks like and how we then support our family members in this space. I hope that I've been a real example to them about you know, what that actually looks like and how we look after our young people, you know, these are kids, right? So they were 14, 15, 16. I mean, you know, I know some people come out even younger than that, but for them, that's really young and it's being queer, being black, <laughs> you know, in America, it's, it's not an easy ride, right, Josh? Sometimes it's not an easy ride in your own family. That's right. And then you're expected to go out into the world and find a new one. <laughs> I think it's tough. But I mean, I'm curious about what your journey has been like, you know, because have you always just kind of been fine? Like, have you always been one of the good ones? Like, what happened at that first coming out? Like, did you have to recalibrate yourself? Did you have to have a conversation with yourself? Like, what was that process? Oh, God, no. I think I've always been, most of my best friends are gay or queer they're from the gay community. So I've always surrounded myself with just a diverse mix of friends. And so I think mm. that for my family, even people who weren't quite, you know, cool with it, they understood that I was the aunt who was a bit out there because of who I surrounded myself with. And that's intentional, right? I want to be surrounded by lots of different people, you know, who have different experiences, different backgrounds. And to me, that's really important because I'm learning, right? I'm learning from all of these people. I'm learning from my queer black friends about what it means, my queer white friends as well, 
about what it means for them in that space. And so I think I was just an open book. And so they just saw me as the person. So I was just the person. So it was a really natural, I didn't have to do no recalibrating. It was just a perfectly natural for me to say, Hey, I'm here. What do you need? How can I support you? Do you need me to speak to your parents? What do you want from me? What does this space look like for you? You know, what does this look like for you? Six months from now, a year from now, what can I do? And just being available. And I've always been that way. And so I think that's just how they see me. And so I feel really privileged that I have been the person for so many of them coming out. So, yeah, I'm thinking about it a lot now because, you know, my niece and nephew and my sister have recently moved nearer to us. And so I pick them up every Friday from school and spend the weekend with them. And I'm very, very conscious that like children are always watching, right? If I think mm-hmm. about my own childhood, I was always observing. And you know what it's like, you turn and you see the children looking at you and you were just washing the dishes. Like they're always just, <laughs> they're always looking. So I'm hyper-conscious and I want to be a really positive role model. Like I want them to see me walking into places with confidence and with my shoulders back and my head held high. And I want them to see me being myself. And I want them to see a, an expression of authenticity that resonates with them. And I'm always talking to people who have young people in their lives because it's an honor, right? To, Mm. as you've said, to kind of be a steward for younger people. And it feels right. I was reading my birth chart with a friend who does astrology and children are all over the place in my chart, right? You're a teacher or there's children in your life. And I feel like I want to make an impact, a really resonating impact, not just in the children in my own lives, but in what young black children think is possible for themselves in the future as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to just be open to and be flexible to everything that's happening, right? Just be open to those things, but to also have backup. I remember thinking when I had my daughter, I was a very young mom. And when my daughter was growing up, I didn't know what support she was going to need. And I said, look, you might not be able to speak to me and that's fine, but I've got sisters, I've got cousins there are people in our circle who you will have who will be available for you to speak to them. And they were. And I'm always kind of making sure that we've got kind of support systems in place for members of my family so they don't ever feel alone. They don't ever feel like they've got to deal with something by themselves. And so this is the part we've always played is to make sure that they've been support systems. So I'm support system for my sister's children and she was for my children and so forth and so forth. And so, you know, I think that's, if we're thinking along those terms, then we kind of cover everything. I think, I hope we do. I hope we are. I hope we are providing that extra level of support they might need. Yeah, it sounds like you do. (laughs) We're both USers, so we're both from the US. So we know what it's like to live in the US and to live in the UK and the difference, you know, and there are some, you know, really clear differences in uh, both places. So tell me, what does it mean? to be queer, Black, and in London compared to the U.S.? Well, this is a great question because for clarity, I spent most of my life in the U.K. I was born here. My mom's British and my dad's American, and he was in the military. So I was born here and, you know, spent childhood summers in Texas with my family, where they're from. You know, I went to high school in the U.S. and then I came back here for university. So cumulatively, I've spent most of my life in the U.K. It's just the American accent's the one that stuck. But I came of age, if you will, in Atlanta. I left Atlanta before I could drink, before I could go out on the scene. 
you know, I came to London and that's where I came into my queerness, right? That's how I understood or began to understand what queerness is. If I look back honestly, I think it had a really detrimental impact on my understanding of myself. Like it was kind of two steps forward and two and a half steps back in that I went from Atlanta surrounded by steeped in blackness, right? I would have emerged into a black queer scene predominantly in Atlanta that has its own issues, of course. And then what happened was I was kind of taken out of blackness and thrown into whiteness. And I wrote about this actually, that I felt like I had to escape Atlanta. And in doing so, I kind of ran into the clutches of whiteness and that kind of some of my resentments or that I really wasn't prepared for the way white men treat black bodies. And so, you know, I don't want to trigger anyone, so I won't, I won't get into it, but I just wasn't ready. And so my coming of age as a queer person has happened here in the UK, has happened among a largely white LGBTQ community. And my coming back into myself has been really to reorient who I'm with, who I look to, who I read, who I listen to, who I spend my time with. And so I would say since my queerness became a lot more political and radical, actually in 2015 with the murder of Freddie Gray, like there was a, the intersection of my queerness and blackness was kind of magnified with that Black Lives Matter uprising in Baltimore. So yeah, I don't know. I've only been on the gay scene in the U.S. sparingly, once in L.A., twice in New York. You know, it's been, that it hasn't been my experience. That really surprises me. It's not what I thought you would say. I thought that it would have been a different experience for you in the U.K. And so and compared to the U.S., you know, these are the assumptions that we make, right? And especially because you're from Texas and Atlanta. And I guess I have a different view of what that would have been like, but I got that completely wrong. So that's really interesting that your experience was very different to what I might have thought. But I'm not a part of that scene either, so I'm not kind of clued up. But I guess for all of our listeners, these are the kind of assumptions that we make. We don't know everyone's story, and we've, we've got to be really careful about that. Yeah. You know, if I had been from a different city, right, if I'd grown up in a different city, I might have been used to being surrounded by white queerness, right, in some respects. I might have been, I know that a lot of us in the queer Black community here in the UK feel that kind of encroachment, if you will, of whiteness, that it's always there. And, you know, the queer Black community here is much smaller than it is in the UK just because of the population size. And so I'm feeling really homesick at the minute. I mean, I consider the UK my home, but I'm feeling very... Atlanta sick at the minute. I'm kind of longing for Black pride in Atlanta. And one of the things I do remember about growing up in Atlanta was that Blackness is so normal. Everywhere you go, there's Black people. You're never in Atlanta, with the exception of some suburbs, like you're never not around Black people, (laughs) you know? And here I am living in Norwich and it's such a remarkably different experience. I mean, even being in Dalston, London, like it's so, it's so white. And so it is a cultural adjustment. And my experience was that I had to make a number of different adjustments to myself to feel like I could fit in. And some of those adjustments I think were very bad, right? I adopted some very bad habits that I was learning from white gays that I then went on to be punished for appropriately. But you know, that who I became 
when I was steeped in whiteness and white gayness to be specific, had some really damaging consequences for me that I've had to really work to rectify, not only within the community, but spiritually and within myself. Mm. Wow. Very, very interesting. There is something around if you're a Black person being in a Black community. So lots of people, when they go away for summer, they go home, right? And a lot of my Black friends, they from the Caribbean or from, you know, from places in Africa. So they're going to be in spaces where it's predominantly Black. And there's something really special about that, right? There's something really magical about being in spaces where you are with your people, right? And there's something really powerful about that, and which is why I love coming back home. Because when I am home, I am surrounded by my family who are all Haitian. And it's just amazing to just be around, you know, Creole speaking people, you know, my black family. And there's something quite magical about being in that space. So I totally kind of get that yearning to be back Mm. in that space. Yeah. And I want to eat like fried green tomatoes Mm. and I want to eat chicken, chicken fried (laughs) steak with white gravy. And I want to eat biscuits and I want to eat collard greens. (laughs) Like I want my food. The food I I spent all my childhood summers eating, the food I (laughs) ate with my friends in high school, like my friends, Marcus and John Michael in high school, we would like joyride into Atlanta on a Saturday and go to Piedmont Park. And we would eat at these soul food restaurants and we would go look in chicken and waffles, Gladys Knight's restaurant over on on Peachtree. And we would be like, one day we're going to have some food here (laughs) when we can afford it. And like, I just remember that as being really kind of idyllic. And I miss that. I miss that, that I was never worried about racism (laughs) in Atlanta, right? And I don't know. I think that some queer Black people would rather be among queerphobic Black people than be among racist white people. Mm. I think people don't understand that, that even in spaces where our queerness is questioned or disliked or not spoken about, that's still a safer space for us to be in than among white people. I get that. Totally, totally, totally get that. You started your podcast, Busy Being Black, which is phenomenal. And Thank you know, you. I'm not sure there's a link to that so everyone can go and have a listen to that. Your episodes discuss reconciling homosexuality with religion, the connection between transphobia and anti-blackness. Can you break that down for me and tell me what's been the response? I started Busy Being Black in March of 2018, and it was in response to like a very public shaming that I experienced. And the community, uh, queer Black people kind of rallied to my defense and kind of held me accountable, but also held me, (laughs) right? And I was having these really beautiful conversations. You know, people were coming to my house and bringing bottles of wine and bringing food or taking me out for dinner and giving me books to read and talking about their own experiences. And I was having these conversations and feeling myself heal, right? Which is a really amazing thing to experience. And I thought, this is so helpful, right? Like people need to hear this. People need to hear what our community has to offer each other. And so, you know, I went to Basilimi, the Nigerian LGBT activist, and, you know, I bought a podcast recorder. I said, Bissy, will you try this thing with me? Like, will you have a conversation with me? And he said, yes. And he was the first person to say yes to the first thing I was doing after the public shaming. Does that make sense? Like, and it was the first yes I got. And I was so moved by that. But in our conversation, he went to a place that I didn't know I was ready to go. 
I credit him with setting the standard for how deep busy could be. And he started speaking about things that I hadn't heard him speak about to me, much less publicly. And towards the end of our conversation, he says, you know, boys like me don't get friends like you. And I was just, I was blown away by that, that in the midst of my mistakes, in the midst of a public shaming, that Bissy saw me and saw what I was trying to do and said yes and acknowledged me and recognized me in that space that we were creating together. And so Busy Being Black just kind of ran from there. I just, I thought, let me ask Mark Thompson, who's an elder. Let me ask Ryan Lange, like, let me just try and see if people will say yes. And the more I kept doing it, the more people kept saying yes and the more confident I started feeling. And that conversation about anti-Blackness and transphobia emerged through my conversation with Travis Alabanza, who's an incredible writer, actor, performance artist. And they opened up so much in that conversation about how the policing of Black people's bodies during enslavement set the groundwork for the policing of trans bodies now. And that transphobia is inherently anti-Black, right? That what we think of as quote-unquote acceptable or quote-unquote normal gendered bodies is rooted in white people looking at Black people and saying, that is abnormal. You're not a woman. You're not a man. And so transphobia has its roots there, right? In the capturing and enslavement, in medical racism, in eugenics, and that you know, what I took from that conversation is that we can't disentangle those things, right? We cannot fight transphobia without fighting anti-Blackness. We cannot fight transphobia without fighting misogynoir. Like, they're all entangled. They all impact each other. And the reconciliation of, of our spirituality and our sexuality is something that I care deeply about. You know, I grew up in the Black church. My grandfather was a pastor. You know, his church in Yoakum, Texas, like this kind of really small town, in the middle of like vertiginous trees. Like I remember spending Sundays in the summer, like humid, sweating, covered in cherry almond jurgens, like just <laughs> <laughs> sitting next to my grandma. Just I've always cared deeply about my spirituality and about my relationship to God, but I had to divorce myself from God in my teens because I couldn't make sense of how. I was being, and LGBT people more broadly, were being singled out as being kind of the ultimate sinners. And so I thought, well, if I can't find resolution, I'm just going to step away. And that hurt me a lot. And so I've been trying to find my way back to God. And Reverend G.D. McCauley has that amazing organization, House of Rainbow, which is an all-inclusive and affirming church. And you know, he says that you know, God never said he doesn't love you, right? Somebody else said God doesn't love you. And I just found that to be really powerful. And in fact, I'm following that up with a queer theologian in New York in an upcoming special for the show because he's doing amazing scholarship and research in queerness, blackness, and the church, right? That the church is responsible and has to take responsibility for the misuse and the weaponizing of the word. Yeah. And I think so many of us need to hear that, not just queer people, but my focus is on queer Black people specifically, that we need to hear that we're not beyond the bounds of God's love. And, you know, I don't see God as him or white, and I think that God is actually a lot more complicated and, I don't know, much more interesting than we learn about. And so I'm kind of understanding more and more that, you know, the more I see, the more I give space to others to be who they are, impacts how I imagine God, right? Because I think we see God in everybody. And sorry, just as a bit of a tangent, but I'm also really inspired by Rumi. 
and his poetry, because what Rumi does so beautifully with his poetry is the erotic and the numinous are like, they occupy the same space. One always follows the other or helps the other, supports the other, alludes to the other. Like Rumi didn't see a, a separation between the flesh and the spirit. He didn't see a separation between love, pleasure, and God. And so I'm really attracted to Rumi's poetry because I just think he does that so beautifully. His poem like this, when someone asks you, how did Jesus raise the dead? Kiss me on the lips and say like this. You know, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Don't get me started on Rumi, honestly. Yeah, totally, totally understand that. And I'm really looking forward to that episode. I will be sharing that very, It's four episodes. That is going to hit so many people at the right time, in the right place. And I'm really looking forward to listening to that. In every episode, we like to share a story that sticks out in your head, one in which you might have experienced racism. Do you have one you'd like to share? I don't. And here's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this links back to Kevin Quashie's The Sovereignty of Quiet, mm-hmm. that Blackness is always supposed to perform. And I don't know why people want to hear about racism, because I don't think Black people like to hear about it. Like, I've never been asked before to talk about racism, from Black people, rather, I should say. And I always find it a very interesting question. And so I resist it. I say no, actually, because what my life is so much more than the moments that people have been a dick, (laughs) right? That someone's inferiority complex has Mm. intervened on my day or tried to distract me. Toni Morrison says that, that the very real function of racism is to distract. It's to distract you from what you're doing, from your creativity, Mm. from your spirit, from your people. Mm. You spend so much time talking about racism and justifying your existence that, you know, you, you forget who you are. You forget what you're here to do. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. And, you know, that's fair. Really, really fair. With everything you've done and shared, you are demonstrating that you are a necessary rebel. What would you like to leave our audience with? What role can they play? I have been encouraged recently by people who are trying and people who are asking questions and people who are doing research and people who are putting what they're learning out into a public space, I just find it so brave. And maybe because I'm doing it myself, so I'm a bit biased, but Mm -hmm. I just find it so helpful. I listened to a conversation today on Twitter Spaces with Joshua Briand, who's at Queer Socialism on Twitter, a brilliant person to follow for all of us. And this conversation he was having with you know, an agender person with another intellectual based in Louisiana, Josh is based in Chicago, I think, was so enlightening and so thought provoking. And they didn't all agree, right? (laughs) Like there were some differing opinions about how things show up in the world, about what our responsibility is as Black people and people of color to activate and agitate against oppression. And I felt it was a wonderful start to the day. And I would just felt so grateful that they did that, that they decided to share with the rest of us what they're doing. And I'm also grateful for people who are posting really funny memes. (laughs) (laughs) I think people really underestimate how often we need to laugh and how wonderful a really funny meme is to come across because I follow lots of like intellectuals and academics and so I can be a bit boring sometimes because I'm just like, what about, I'm going to read a book, but I can also be really funny and I also really enjoy laughing. And so to have people putting into the world what they think is funny. I'm so, so grateful for that. We need so much levity at the moment. And 
Black people need to be reminded that their joy is just as important as their anger is just as important as social justice, like that we deserve to laugh and we deserve to love. So the more that we can do that together, I think the better we'll all be. I love that. Black joy. That's the aim, isn't it? It is. And laughter. Laughter. (laughs) Let's laugh together. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next, Josh? I would like to be the next Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's right. Aim high. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean a black billionaire. I think I grew up watching Oprah. Oprah's one of my black blueprints. Mm. And one of my earliest memories is interviewing my sister's dolls. I was watching Oprah and tried to do the same thing. And I can remember that really vividly that I thought, oh, I have questions to ask these teddy bears. I want to do for queer people, for queer black people, what Oprah did for women, right? Mm. Like she centered women's experiences. She made them feel like their spiritual inquiry was valid. She made them feel as if self-improvement was a good thing to pursue. She centered really unapologetically the woman. And I want to do that for queer black people. I want to put us on a global stage. And this is not to say it's not being done. It absolutely is. But I want to create a space in which queer black people and queer people of color are absolutely centered and prioritized and where they can see themselves reflected back to them in their brilliance, in their averageness, in their ordinariness, in their everydayness, in their ambitiousness. Like I want a space in which all of who we can be is on show and display and is celebrated and appreciated. So that's what I'm trying to do with Busy Being Black. I want to help change the world through this platform. I have no doubt you're going to do that, but I have no doubt, Josh. Absolutely. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time today. We really, really appreciate it. You are phenomenal. Thank you. You're so cool. You know, I'm obsessed with you. (laughs) I think you're so cool. Because I'm obsessed with you as well. So we can be obsessed with each other and support each other. I got you. I got you, Josh. I got you. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Will you quickly tell everyone where they can find you? Yes. I'm underscore Josh Rivers on Instagram and underscore Busy Being Black on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find more information about the show at busybeingblack.com. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at necessary underscore rebels underscore pod. This was an II Studios production. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and give us any feedback as we're always trying to be better. And stay tuned for our next episode.